Hope y'all doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. We are in the book of Acts. We've been in it for about a month or so. Um, right before we looked at the book of Acts, we were in a, uh, a series about the mission of the church, community mission and care. And so we talked about those three things as uh, what we want to do as, as our church, community mission care. We want to build biblical community. We want to live our lives and join Jesus on mission and practice caring for one another. And as we're doing those three particular things, we think we'll be obedient to being what it means to be a church. And so after we taught that, we decided to go into the book of Acts so that as we're going through the book of Acts, we'll continually see how those very first Christians in the first century practiced these particular things, community mission and care. And so um, as we see the way that they did it as the first church, we can put some of those things in practice with us. So we are going through... Uh, the book of Acts, <clears throat> and we're in chapter two. So uh, I'm gonna give you a little bit of a, uh, of a catch up, a little bit of a review, and then we'll pray and, and we'll look at Acts chapter two. We'll be in verses 22 through 41, 22 through 41. Um, just as a reminder, so in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus uh, did his great commission and he told them that he wants them to be witnesses, that they're gonna receive the Holy Spirit, and that they're going to be witnesses in Judea, that's, or in Jerusalem, that's where they are. That's that immediate place. And then Judea and Samaria, that's the, the next surrounding places out. And then to the ends of the earth. But he says when the Holy Spirit comes, that's when it's going to happen. Well, in chapter 2, and verses 1 through 13, the Holy Spirit comes. And so that's whenever they receive the power now to be witnesses. And at that particular moment, after they received the Holy Spirit, uh, they're all speaking in different languages and people are hearing it and they're wondering what people are kind of walking by that aren't believers that didn't receive the Spirit at that particular time, just those 120 did, and they're speaking in languages. And so they're wondering, you know, what, what's happening here? Why, why is this happening? And they're presuming that they're just drunk. You, these guys just must be drunk because we don't understand what's going on. And Peter stands up and says, um, it's, it's not am. So, no. And then here's what's happening. And so Peter, as he knows the Bible, points him over to the book of Joel in the Old Testament and said, actually, this day was prophesied whenever the Holy Spirit would come and this would happen. And so uh, last week, we looked at the first half of Peter standing up. Now, Peter is an interesting guy. The way we look at it last week is um, a similar-ish situation happened to Peter where he was thrust into a spotlight of people and he had a chance to be bold. This is right before the death of Jesus where people were saying, hey, weren't you a follower of him? Didn't you know him? And even a little girl. And he cowers away and says no. And in this particular instance, a second instance where he is thrust into the spotlight, if you will. And what's Peter going to do? Is he going to do like he did the first time and cower away? No, he's not because of the death, burial, resurrection, um, and the, the Holy Spirit filling, filling Peter here. And this particular time, he's going to stand up and preach boldly and not run away. And so as we saw that last week, we looked at verses 14 through 24, 14 through 24, and we talked about Peter, um, who was able to stand up this particular time compared to the, the previous time. And because he preached this sermon, we saw some characteristics about Peter through the sermon he preached, that he was restored, that that first cowering away was, was not true of him anymore, but because Christ had restored him, we saw in John 21, Peter was restored. We also saw that he's obedient. He, he obeyed Acts 1-8 to be a witness where Jesus told him. We also saw that he was a man who studied the word. 
as they were saying they must be drunk, he said, no, that's not the case. Joel chapter two, and he talks to those who are Israelites because he knew the word, that he was able to point to them what's going on, encouraging us to also know the word. We also saw that Peter was an evangelistic man. In verse 21, he tells them to call upon the name of the Lord. And so we knew that he's warning them to be saved. We'll even see some more of that later on today. And then lastly, we saw that in verses 22 through 24, he preaches the gospel to them. The gospel is the good news or the news of Jesus. His life he lived, verse 22, his death that he he endured, verse 23, and his resurrection, verse 24. So Peter preached the gospel and that message had changed him. So we saw that he was also a gospel man. As I studied this week, we could have added more in there. We could have added, he was a Holy Spirit filled man because that's the reason why he actually stood up and preached. He was also Christocentric. I mean, everything for him centered in on the person and work of Christ. Um, And so as we saw those things last week, um, it led us into this week. So instead of kind of going in that same vein, we're going to, we're going to take a a, a shift. So we're looking at the second half of Peter's sermon today. We're going to take a little bit of a shift and look at it instead of looking at the sermon being preached to this man. So these things are true. We're going to look at the contents of the sermon. And as we look at the contents of the sermon, we're going to see responses. And as we see gospel centered preaching happening to these people, what are some of the responses that are happening in this particular moment um, in history? And then are those responses happening in our own lives? So let's pray. And then we will, we will jump into uh, 22 through 41. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. You're so, so kind to us to give us your very words. And so I pray that all of us, including myself, would, would consider these words. We would consider um, what they are, who they're from, what they mean. And that because those who are Christians in this room are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will teach us what they mean. You will lead us and train us into righteousness. You will show us uh, what understanding means and how we should live differently because of it. I pray that as we see what gospel-centered preaching does, what are the right responses? I pray that as we see that, that we would want to respond in these particular ways as well. I know there'll be challenge as we look at this, Lord, for all of us, including myself. And as we see those challenges, we would because of Christ, because of the good news that we would want those things to happen in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we saw um, verses 14 through 24. So what I'm gonna do is I'm taking 22 through 24 and it was last week, but it's also gonna be in this week. It's gonna be the centerpieces as, as we move on. Uh, the title is, is Peter's sermon, but the, the, the real main idea is when there's gospel preaching that is happening, it should cause us to do something. It should cause us. There's a response that should happen. You can just leave it on that title for right now. So let me read 22 through 41. And as we um, read through it, we'll point out some things. But the first thing that we're gonna do is we're going to notice um, in verses 22 down to about verse 32, we're going to see the, the simple, not simplistic, but simple um, yet profound gospel message that Peter preaches to them. Verse 22, men of Israel, note, he's, he's speaking to people who are Jewish. So they know the word. They know the Old Testament. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. 
So he's, in verse 22, he talks about the life of Jesus, what he did, the healings, and all his ministry that he had. And then he moves to the death. This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So it was plan A, there was no plan B. It was always going to be Christ dying for sinners. You crucified and killed by the lawless hands of men. So we have his life, we have his death. And then in verse 24, the good news is the resurrection. God raised him up. If you underline, underline this, loosing the pangs of death. That is a massively, massively beautiful statement for us. Because the pangs of death were loosened because Jesus defeated death and it had no hold on him. Therefore, the same is true for us. The pangs of death are loosened on you. All that can happen to you is you can die physically, but you can never die spiritually. Death cannot do anything to you. And now you will, and I, who are in Christ, will be able to live with Christ forever in heaven. So because of the resurrection, and it's crucial that the resurrection happen, the, the pangs of death has, have been loosened because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible. And then um, concerning the resurrection, Peter who knows the scriptures and he knows he's talking to people who are Israelites, verse 22, men of Israelites, is gonna quote Psalm 16 here. Psalm 16, verses eight through seven. Uh, I'm sorry, eight through 11. And as he's quoting it, he's going to point them to uh, the truths of the resurrection that are present in this text. Um, the ESV study Bible discussing the fact that he's going to quote Psalm 16 says this. Peter quoted Psalm 16 as a text pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. And they knew about about David in Psalm 16, noting that David spoke of God not abandoning him to death. He reasoned that, Peter reasoned that because David died, the psalm must have been speaking about one of his descendants rather than David. David died, got put in a, got put in a, a casket, if you will, of some sort. His flesh rotted. He died. One day his flesh will be made whole, but he did die. But Jesus, when he died, came back to life. There was never a moment where his flesh rotted unto death. He came back to flesh and is in flesh now. And so the ESV study Bible says they're reasoning that since it, David died, it must be speaking of one of his descendants. Since Jesus is the only one then who conquered death, is a descendant of David, he must be the promised um, Messiah that David foresaw. So look at the contents of this particular psalm that Peter quotes, knowing the scriptures so well. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. <clears throat> verse 27 is key because Peter's gonna explain it in verse 31. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or to death, if you will, or let your Holy One see corruption, that my flesh will not cor be corrupt. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, just a side note, by the way, verse 28 is beautiful for us. Verse 28 is a beautiful promise for us. The truth is, for those who are in Christ, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. In the presence of Christ is fullness of joy. Nothing else will offer you fullness and gladness of your heart more than Jesus. That's not just true in heaven, but that's true now. Any idols that try to compete with your heart for joy in Christ are just mud puddles compared to the ocean, as C.S. Lewis says, that's being offered. Back to verse 29. So now he's going to, as he explains to us Psalm 16, uh, as, after he quotes Psalm 16, he's going to explain what, how it concerns the resurrection. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's still there. He's still in there. And in contrast, 
Jesus was died. Jesus was, was died. English is hard. Um, Jesus died. He was buried, but he's not in the tomb anymore. He's not in the tomb anymore. He's contrasting David and, and Jesus. Being therefore a prophet, talking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. David was a king, but he knew one day one of his descendants, and Jesus is in the line of David, he was going to assume the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here it is, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's Jesus. And so he's quoting Psalm, helping you see that the resurrection of Jesus, where he died, yes, but came back to life and his flesh never saw corruption. Therefore, the resurrection is pointing to Jesus. So he says, men of Israel, this man that came back to life, you know that it's gonna be a descendant of David. You know that his flesh won't see corruption. That just happened. That just happened. So he preaches to them the good news of, of, of the gospel. And he says, this Jesus God raised up And of that, here it is, we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. I mean, this follows almost the exact same pattern that Paul preaches in 1 Corinthians 15. The the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then the witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's verse 5 and 6 and following, where Paul talks about the witnesses. So that means that our particular faith is not a faith that we just kind of blindly believe in. There is much evidence to the resurrection. The the leap of faith talk, while I understand it, is not particularly helpful. It insinuates that we are taking a leap of faith blindly and we have no evidence, but we're just going to believe that God did something without evidence. That's not Christianity. Christianity is based on much evidence. Much evidence. So here we see the gospel that's preached and evidence that there are witnesses that were present and understand and saw this and now are proclaiming it to you that this really happened. So Peter preaches the gospel. And then after that, we see what happens. There are responses that try to happen. I mean, not try, that there are responses that do happen. Gospel preaching causes us to see things, know things, understand things, respond in certain ways. So here we see the gospel in verses 22 through 32. And then after that, we see the the causes that happen. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what happens is, Peter explains to them that after this happened, God has taken Jesus and he has exalted him at the right hand of the Father. And there he is now, interceding for us still, as Romans 8 says. God now has placed Christ as the exalted one in heaven who is to forever receive exaltation and worship. So as we look at verses 32 through 33, we can see that gospel preaching, whenever it's delivered, should cause us then, as point number one, or um, response number one is this, to see and worship Jesus exalted at the right hand of God. If and when the gospel is preached to you, it should cause your heart to be stirred because of what he's done. It should cause your heart to be stirred for Christ, moved by the good news that you now want to become a worshiper. The gospel, the good news that we've been saved from death and hell 
and all of our sins forgiven and then moved into right relationship with God, transferred into the kingdom of the Son, as Colossians 1 says, that it should cause us to now be worshipers of Jesus. I mean, worship with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is what it calls us to. To see Christ and worship Christ as the exalted one. The resurrection of Jesus ensures our spiritual resurrection. The physical resurrection of Jesus ensures your spiritual resurrection. And because you have been given a spiritual resurrection, it should cause you to scream out with joy for what Christ has done for you. Now, I want to be clear here. It should cause your heart to sing, 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 sing for him. But you have to see him and worship him as the exalted one of Christ. Both of those things are grace. The fact that you are even able to see him as the exalted one is God performing an act of grace on you, removing the scales off your eyes so that you see him. You really see him as the exalted one. And not only do you see him, oh, I see it, but then your heart also is captivated by that truth and you worship. Both are acts of grace. And when you do it, you should see it as that. You should see it that the Lord has been very kind to you, that you can see and worship him as the exalted one at the right hand of the Father. Gospel preaching should cause this. Now, I want to be clear. Gospel preaching isn't just in the context of a Sunday morning. Even in your community groups, as you rotate each week and each person tells each other the good news of the gospel, as you together turn the diamond from that perspective on what it means to be saved by Jesus and you tell your group that, that should cause in you as you hear it a moving of your heart. Just, wow, I want, this is what I personally want. Every time someone tells me the good news of Christ that I don't ever say, got that one down. I know that. What I want is for me to have a massive heart shift and adoration of Jesus. Whenever someone reminds me of the good news of Christ, I want and pray for, Lord, help me see and worship Jesus as the exalted one every single time I hear the good news of Christ. Never get, never get, you know, in a place where I think that's just something I'm familiar with. So the first thing gospel preaching does is it causes us to be worshipers. The second one is this. You see in verse uh, 34, Peter's going to quote another psalm. He's going to quote Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Again, he's still making his case that uh, this particular one who is exalted is not David. There was never a time where David ascended into the heavens. But... We do know that it was Jesus that ascended to the heavens because he's already told us in Acts 1 and we also saw it in the end of all the Gospels. Jesus is the one that ascended into the heavens. Therefore, this particular psalm and all of the Old Testament messianic language is about Jesus and he's still trying to make his case to them. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord, that's Jesus, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, in in the Old Testament, if you want to look, look at Psalm 110. And you'll be able to see uh, how this kind of works out a little bit more. 
I, I forgot to point this out in first service, but, um, you know, because your second service, you get, you get more stuff. So um, if you look at, um, it's ridiculous, but look at, look at verse one in, in Psalm chapter one. If you see this, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, same thing. But in the Hebrew, you'll see um, the Lord, the first one is all caps. Anytime in the Old Testament you see all caps, that's the word Yahweh, I am. And then the second time you see the word Lord, it's a capital L, but the O-R-D are lowercase. You see that in verse 1 of Psalm 110? The Lord said to my Lord. This is saying the Yahweh says to my Adonai. So this is the, the Lord God says to the, the Adonai or, or the king, talking to David. So as we come over here, we know in this particular verse, as he's, Peter's looking back, it says, the Lord says to my Lord. That means Jesus said to David, sit at my right hand. Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. In other words, the first Lord is the one that's in charge, and that's the capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, Jesus himself, because Peter's saying that's Jesus. So here we have a, a clear um, showing that the Lord is Christ, and he is the capital L-O-R-D, Lord. And then it says, until I make your enemies a footstool, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. The no for certain underlines what I just said about the, the leap of faith language. This is, a, this is a reasonable faith that we have based on evidence that, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We can know for certain, says it and also in John, 1 John chapter 5, verse, I think it's 12. Um, so anyway, maybe 10. So, Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That means Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. But he's also the Lord. He is the I am, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the second thing I want you to see, and R.C. Sproul points this out in his commentary. It's beautiful. that There's a, there's a recent kind of phenomenon of happening, of making Christ our Savior, not our Lord. Saying, I want Jesus to be my Christ, my Messiah, my Savior but not my Lord. So the second thing is this. Gospel preaching causes us to make Jesus our Lord. Not just our Savior, but our Lord. As I said, there's been a a recent phenomenon in trusting Christ as Savior, but not giving Him our lives as Lord. Yes, I want Jesus to save me. Yes, I don't want to go to hell. That sounds terrible. But I still want to call the shots in my life. He's not my Lord, he's just my Savior right now. One day I'll make him my Lord. That kind of talk would never make sense to anybody in the first century. They would have never ever even understood that kind of talk. There's no making him your Savior, but not your Lord. When Jesus is your Lord, that means he calls the shots. Because we live in the 21st century America, where we're we're quite individualistic, um, a lot of times we can think that we can become a Christian, but still kind of live this... I run the shots, uh, I run the show kind of life. And gospel preaching pushes in on that belief and says, no, that's not true. When Christ is your Savior, He is also your Lord. He calls the shots. He says, this is what it means to be a believer in Christ. You can't just ask, ask me a Savior and not make me your Lord. I call the shots in your life. I tell you how things work. Now, that doesn't bother us. We, we say, we get to have Jesus call the shots. I want to have Jesus call the shots because he's so wonderful. It's not a a thing we kind of go kicking and screaming into. But this recent trend 
of having Jesus as our Savior, but not as our Lord, is a foreign, antithetical idea to the New Testament. In um, the first century, there was kind of two ways uh, or two thoughts behind teaching in the New Testament. So whenever you would stand up and proclaim the gospel to unbelievers or you would teach to unbelievers, they had something called the kerygma. And that's the, the apostles' teaching of the gospel. You would teach them the good news of the gospel to the unbeliever. And as they got saved, then you would do what would be called the didache. That's the teaching. Or now that you're a Christian, you need to go under what's called the didache, the didactic. You've probably heard of didactic teaching. That just means like teaching, teaching. The didache just means teaching. So that's when you would enter into learning what it means to be um, uh, a theological person, if you will. In the first century, I want to make sure we understand this. We sometimes think that the kerygma is making Jesus your savior and then the, the didache is the part of of making Jesus your Lord. That's not how it worked in the first century. The kerygma, the gospel proclamation, is making Jesus your Savior and your Lord. Right up front, he's both. And now you can move in, as after he's your Savior and your Lord, into the didache, the teaching of learning theology, right understanding about who he is and what he's done. So, Sproul, as he's explaining this, says... um, the idea of making Jesus just your Savior, not your Lord. He says this, this inviting Jesus into my life language, and then one day maybe you'll get to be my Lord. He, he, thinks, it's, um, he thinks it's absurd. He says this message, Jesus' message is far more radical than the inviting Jesus into your heart message. Peter is saying that it is a matter of objective reality that God is Lord. Whether you, whether you choose to make him your Lord or not, what's part of objective reality is that he is your Lord. God who created the heaven and the earth has made Christ the Lord of the universe. He rules. He doesn't wait for you to invite him to rule. He rules. He rules whether or not you want him to rule. We can be hostile to his reign. We can be renegades in his dominion. We might fight against his just empowerment as the king of kings and lord of lords. But all that we do to try to reduce him does not reduce him to impotency. Our attempts to supplant him as lord are impotent. Because God has already decreed Jesus' lordship. So, gospel preaching, maybe we should rephrase this, doesn't make Jesus our Lord. Instead, informs us that Jesus has already been and always will be our Lord. He's our Savior, but He's the Lord. And His lordship over us is not um, a tyrannical kind of relationship we love him as our king we love him he's a good good king now i want to point out a couple things here let all the house of israel therefore know for certain that god has made him both lord and christ and then in verse 36 it says this jesus whom you crucified now This is twice that he's looked at them and said that. If you look over in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 36, both Lord and Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, in Evangelism 101 class, they didn't tell us to knock on everybody's door and say, hey, by the way, you killed Jesus. How would you like to come to Jesus right now? Would you like to... That's usually what they would say a pretty um, not strategic strategy of trying to win people over. Peter uh, doesn't necessarily take the PC approach, if you will. He looks at them and he says, 
You killed Jesus. Now, I think he's winsome. I think he's caring. I think he's humble. But one thing that he doesn't do is sugarcoat the gospel. He doesn't sugarcoat it. Now, if today I looked at someone likely uh, in our highly, uh, our society that takes everything kind of personal, I should say. Uh, you killed Jesus, how about you coming to know Christ? They would say, that's, that's offensive. You're offending me pretty bad. That's not what happens here. He looks at them twice and says, you killed Jesus. And because he doesn't sugarcoat the gospel. Now, I'm not saying be a jerk and be obnoxious. I'm saying proclaim the gospel humbly, winsomely, but fully, fully. He tells them twice, look what happens. Now, when they heard this, they were offended. No. How dare you say that, Peter? What about you? No. Notice it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Notice this question. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? That's a question that recognizes that that's true. That's them saying, you're right. You're right, we, we killed Jesus. That's them saying, oh no, what have we done? We crucified God. What do we do? I think this is language of desperation because they're cut to the heart. And he said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, that's the response we want to get people to. We're going to have to do it winsomely. We're going to have to do it lovingly and humbly. But we also have to tell them the full gospel. To those, as Corinthians says, to those who are being saved with the aroma of Christ, to those who are not being saved with the aroma of death. And as we proclaim the same gospel, some smell it and we bring life and some smell it and we smell like death to them. But it's the same message. And when we proclaim it fully, winsomely, lovingly, humbly, like Peter, there will be people that are cut to the heart and will ask you the heartfelt question, what do I, what do I need to do? We, we want people to get to that, to that point. That's, that's the goal we're aiming for whenever they're broken. We didn't do it. Only the Lord can do this. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. You can't cut someone to the heart. But we want them to be cut to the heart and they say, what, what do I need to do? And Peter looked at them and said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Third thing, gospel preaching should cause us to be cut to the heart and to repent. Gospel preaching should cause this. Our hearts are stone. Our hearts are hard. It takes the power of God to cut our hearts. It takes the power of God. We don't like God making ultimate demands on our life. We don't like him telling us, this is what it means to be saved. This is how you're saved. You need to have a heart change and repent. Our necks are stiff. Our hearts are hard. And we don't like it. But in order to be saved, our stone hard hearts have to be cut. And so when we hear they were cut to the heart, we could think, wow, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty bold act of God. But again, it's a grace. It's a grace of God that our hearts would be cut. In order for us to be saved, our hearts have to be cut. We have to be wounded, if you will. 
Acts, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 2 verse 4 tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So it's the kindness of God to cut us to the heart. Only the power of God can do that. That would lead us to what they say, repentance. It's the grace of God that leads us to repentance. Now, I want to point out one particular thing. We're going to see it again, but I'm going to point it out twice because I'm really Baptist. Um, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. As you're looking through the book of Acts, people are going to make the cases that whenever large people are being baptized, there had to be children in there. And I just want to predicate Peter's words there again for us all. Repent and be baptized in the the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So in order to be baptized, you have to repent. There is no baby that practices faith and repentance. So baptism of babies is predicated on the fact that they need to be um, repenters first. We'll see that again in a second. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So they were cut to the heart and then they repented. That's what gospel preaching does. I want to I read you a story of a man, maybe one of the best preachers ever. Um, Chrysostom in the third century is called Golden Tongue. If George Whitfield lived in the first century, he would have been called like Golden Tongue times two. I don't know if you've ever heard of George Whitfield. I invite you to Google him. Piper's got a book in the Swan series about him. That's usually like three different three different. Uh, theologians, and you can read one. He had, his, he, had, he had some problems like every person in history. However, he was an amazing outdoor evangelist. He preached in the 1700s outdoors, sometimes up to, I've read, I think I've read stories, up to five to 10,000 people. No PA system. Just his booming voice preaching to scores of people getting saved. He traveled all over England and all over America and would preach, and people would get saved. He was an amazing wordsmith like Spurgeon just how do you preach with such amazing words and coupled with passion he was actually uh, charged with play acting as he preached he was so passionate no one's that passionate when they preach but he was and he was moved by God and there was one particular moment in in history where he was preaching um I'll read it to you George Whitfield an itinerant evangelist of great eloquence and power again we're we're looking at people cut to the heart, the hardest of hearts being cut to the heart. George Whitfield was an itinerant, that just means traveling, evangelist of great eloquence and power. He preached to multitudes in England, Scotland, and Wales, and America. Whitfield's preaching was clearly anointed by God since the fires of revival lit wherever Whitfield preached. One of the many surviving anecdotes from Whitfield's ministry involves his preaching among the miners in Bristol, who at that time were treated like animals. And had little in the way of food or warmth. Thousands of these men once gathered around Whitfield when he was preaching. When he came to preach. A sea of coal blackened faces arrayed before him. So think about this. Coal miners. Generally large groups of pagan men. Coal miner men. Whenever they're together. And I've I've never been coal miners. But I've been in large groups of people that are thought like animals. They're very vulgar. Hard heart. Men's men. And you can imagine. Whitfield stands up to preach and a sea of coal miner, hard heart, men's men, black faces from the coal and soot on their face, hearing them, probably very vulgar kind of men. And Whitfield stands up to preach the gospel. What's going to happen? Are they going to be cut to the heart? Are they going to remain men's men and, and pagan types of men? Thousands of these men gathered around Whitfield when he came to preach. A sea of coal black faces arrayed before him. 
But when the preaching began, the Spirit of God moved and the miners were pierced to the heart and hearing of the love and mercy of God, they began to weep and white lines appeared down their blackened faces as tears cut furrows down their cheeks. Many came to Christ that day as the heavens were opened in response to the preaching of God's word. That's just, that's so beautiful. And then Derek Thomas ends with these two questions as he tells this story. Do you pray for such results in our time? Do you long that we might see such a day? Don't discount yourself from this. Who was Peter just six weeks ago? Cowering away from a weak little girl. And here he is. I would submit that you and I are likely, in that weakest point of Peter, pretty weak like that. And can identify with that. And what's the difference? The Holy Spirit came into him. The same Holy Spirit in you. So don't discount yourself too fast and say, I could never see something like that. Here's the key. Do you pray for that? Do you long for that? Do you pray for that? Do you long for that? Here, a response of gospel preaching is cut to the heart in repentance. Now, I want to make sure that we're being as as fully orbed as we can as believers here. We've been talking about this third point from the perspective of us preaching to unbelievers. But let's be sure this also applies to believers. Every time, as Martin Luther says, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. So every time gospel preaching happens to us, we also need to be soft to the message of the gospel and have a heart that's moldable and cut and also practicing repentance of the things that God is continually putting in our own lives. You're right, God. Cut, moved, repenting. That's the third response or cause from good gospel preaching. The next one is this, if you keep reading. Verse, let's read 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So we know that this repentance must precede faith. um, And then whenever it happens, then you can be baptized. Then you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't think any babies receive the gift of the Holy Spirit whenever they're baptized. And then verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children. There's another verse that we could see. See there? Baptism, promise for children. Again, don't, don't miss out on the repentance part in verse 38. Repentance, baptism, and that's a promise for all people that, are, that will repent and be baptized. And I think that the theology of verse 39 is not necessarily about children being baptized, but more the rest of that. For all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. It's more of an, of an idea of... <clears throat> That person in your life that you've been praying for, that family member, that brother, that sister, that father, that mother, that you just, is there any way they're going to come to know Christ? Right here. Everyone that's far off, everyone that's far off has an opportunity. I think that's more what it's saying. You and your children, everybody you can think of, they do have a chance. They do have an opportunity to put their faith in Christ. You be faithful to proclaim the gospel to them. But... There is familial language being used in verse 39. There's a, there's a family. This is a promise for you and all your children. That's family language. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. 
and with many other words, so that means that wasn't the full context of Peter's sermon. He said a lot of other stuff than just uh, 14b through 39. Peter was a long preacher. He's trying to be like Peter. And with many other words, he bore witnesses and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves. This is what he said. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So you're a part of a family, a generation of people, a family that are crooked, that are, um, that are not of God. Now, if you put your faith in Christ, you can move over to a different family, a different type of generations that will happen, a new community, if you will. And so gospel preaching does this. Gospel preaching causes us to realize that we're called now into a new community. Causes us to realize that we're called into a new community. Number four, it'll come up in a second. Realize that we're called into a new community. John Stott, looking at this text, says this. Commitment to Jesus. Whenever we hear the gospel and we get saved and now we commit our lives to Jesus. He says this. Commitment to Jesus implies commitment to his community, the church. There is no, yes, I'm going to be a Christian and I am part of your family, but I'm never going to go to church, God. Being called into his family means that you are now part of his family. You're part of the church. Indeed, Stott says, they would have to change communities, these particular people, transferring their membership from the one that was old, the one that was corrupt, the one that was generation that was crooked, and now into the one that is new, now into the generation or the family, the community that is being saved. There's a transfer. And whenever we come to Christ, we are called into a new community. Now, I can't go too much into depth on this. If I do, then I'm going to step all over next week's sermon in verses 42 through and following, which is in the rest of chapter 2, which is about living in community. So I don't want to step all over next week's sermon. But I will say this. Um, Jesus has called you into a new community. You who are in Christ, he has called you into a new community. That means you are in a saved community. And that means now you are never allowed to live in isolation. That's not what it means to be a Christian, to live in isolation anymore. It calls you out of isolation. Actually, it demands that you come out of isolation. And it demands that you go into a community. Gospel preaching demands that we no longer see ourselves as a lone ranger, but come to Christ, which means we're part of the family of God which means we're part of the bride of Christ, demands that we live our lives in community. And let me be clear, you can live in isolation and go to community group every week because you're just a vault. You don't ever say anything. You don't ever open up your heart. So don't, don't kid yourself and say, oh, that's not me because I go to community group every week. You should be in community every week, both on Sunday and each week, if you're at Remedy, in our community groups or whatever church that you would go to, and that community that they've built out to, to, to form you into a disciple. But <clears throat> it means that you can never live in isolation. But even as you're part of that community, you can't be a closed vault. Because the gospel says you don't have to be. The good news of the gospel is I can tell you everything that's going on in my life and I'm forgiven. The gospel calls us out and says, you don't have to be fake. The good news is all that's forgiven. And now by God's grace, we will march on. So, I won't say any more. I don't want to step all over next week's sermon. But it does mean that we're called out into a new community. 
Lastly, probably my favorite, but that's the evangelist in me. Gospel preaching, verse 41b. So those who received his word, here it is, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We can, we can take that at its word. This isn't faulty reporting since God wrote the book. 3,000 people got saved that day. I mean, it could have been 2,999. It could have been 3,001. Uh, an estimation sure is fine. But in the big neighborhood of 3,000, 3,000 people got saved. That's astounding. Fifth one. Whenever gospel preaching co- happens, it causes us to see lots of people get saved and baptized. The pattern of the book of Acts is people living in community, living on mission, seeing people get saved and baptized, saved and baptized, saved and baptized. We won't go into the theology of the same day baptism. That is an interesting talk. I want to talk about it, but we're not going to. But they, on that particular day, from being obedient to going, Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and sit in the upper room. They did that. And as the Holy Spirit fell, they started speaking in tongues. People started gathering around. Somehow they moved out of that room into the outdoor open. People are saying, what's going on? They must be drunk. What's happening? Peter stood up boldly, didn't act like he did before, but stood up boldly, proclaimed the gospel. No, this is actually what's happening. Tells them the good news of the gospel. And as he finishes, straightforward, you killed Jesus, men of Israel. Really straightforward, says it twice. Cut to the heart. Repentance. Brothers, what should we do? Repent, trust in Christ, and they do. And at least 3,000 people were saved. There could have been some that weren't saved that day. We, we see in verse 13, there were mockers. Maybe some of the mockers didn't get saved. But the second greatest sermon, I think, the second greatest sermon ever preached, saw 3,000 people get saved. Don't you long for that? Don't you long to see scores of people get saved in an instant. I long for Remedy Church to see this. For you, not me, you, to see scores of people get saved when you tell the gospel to people. I want you to pray for that. I want you to pray to be bold. Like Peter, who had every reason to cower again. That was his history. Cowering. But he didn't. He was saved, he was gospeled, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he stood up. You're saved, you've trusted in Christ because of the gospel, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. These results can happen. These results can happen in our very eyes. Let's pray for this to happen. So, in this fifth one, if you're writing notes, don't just write, See lots of people get saved and baptized. Write this. God, I want to pray that I see lots of people get saved. I want to pray that I would long for people to get saved. And if I don't long, God, help me long to see people get saved. And you proclaim and I proclaim and we proclaim the gospel in whatever situation and whatever context the Lord puts us in. And we long for it. Lord, save this city. Save our Jerusalem. Let us see in an instant scores of people get saved.
We know that He can do it. Pray for it. Long for it. We're going to go into a time of worship. And I would just encourage you, whichever one of these five that you know the Lord, or maybe multiple, the Lord is pressing in on and saying, I want you to do this. I want you to pray for it. I want you to get in community. I want you to be more repentant. I want you to make Jesus as Lord. I want you to be a worshiper of the exalted one at the, high, at the at hand of God. I want you to ask the Lord to help you to grow in that. Let's worship together. Let's pray. Jesus, be with us now as we worship. Thank you that you bring us together in a time where we can worship corporately. You're so good to us. Infinitely better than we deserve. We get to be in a room and sing to you freely. There's multiple places in the world that don't get to do that. That's a grace. You're infinitely better to us than we deserve. I pray that we take that freedom we have and we use it. We proclaim to you just how glorious you are. Praise in Jesus' name.